You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello and welcome to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-host, Doug Curl, Sarah Arpin. Hey. How are you all doing? Good. Hello. Again, great, great topic today, which is paleontology. Yeah. And the name of the episode that we have come up with, we we haven't named, have we named any other episodes? Not really. We've had little taglines. We have or descriptions something, and stuff. Whatever. There's a name for this one because we <laughs> couldn't not use this. <laughs> this is the Brachio podcast. <laughs> and that's not my idea. That was Jason Dorch's idea, which I thought was a really funny and really good one. Jason was a guest on the podcast earlier. How can you not, if you're doing a podcast on paleontology, how can you not say this is the Brachio podcast? So anyway. Pretty stoked. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do a pretty good job of trying to rationalize the topics we want to talk about on this podcast and why we do it and what's the most effective for reaching broad audiences. And with paleontology, that's easy to do. I mean, it's it's such an exciting topic. I mean, it's a traditional geology topic, but that, you know, paleontology is the reason, I think part of the reason that lots of people get into geology in the first place, right? Fossils are fascinating. Uh, you've collected them as a kid, perhaps. But it's more than just a fossil collection or a fossil identification or seeing dinosaur bones at a museum, right? fossils and paleontology in general is so so much more you can tell us about origins of life past environments evolution how fossils tie to other theories in geology that are really critical for what we know about uh, the earth and earth science and, and and so many other things i think broadly all those topics we'll get into with our guests and talking about paleont- paleontology so it is a pleasure to have Steve Greb as our guest. He's a research geologist with the Kentucky Geological Survey and adjunct faculty with the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department here at UK. So, Steve, it's great to have you. And uh, why don't you tell us what you what you do in a nutshell? I'm a research geologist here at the Geologic Survey. My main job is as a what's called a sedimentologist. It's studying how rock layers are deposited by sediment and by understanding how sediment is deposited in the modern world, we can interpret how rock layers were formed. And then part of that that relates to paleo is that in many environments, life lives on and in those environments so that they leave a record behind that helps you determine whether something was land or sea, shallow sea, deep sea. It really gets, people would be surprised sometimes some of the specifics you can determine by a combination of fossils and rock layers. And you really are the resident KGS paleontologist. I mean, that's not necessarily necessarily your day-to-day gig, but but here at the survey, you're the man. I, I guess I am the man. All right. That doesn't necessarily say a lot for the people I work with. But. <laughs> He's the yeah. one I send all the identification yeah. emails to. If, so. if you ask for a... F- Fossil identification request, I am likely the person yeah. that will attempt to yeah. answer it. I've uh, pawned things off on you several times. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So let's let's get into it. We've got we've got some things to discuss, but I think I would like to start out sort of simply here with with our topics. And so let's tee this up. A couple questions here. What is paleontology? And what is a fossil? And what is more importantly, what's not a fossil? Okay, uh, let's start with what is paleontology, and the simple answer is just the study of ancient life. Okay, so it's just, if you think of fossils, fossils are any evidence of ancient life. Plants now, plants or plants, animals? animals or, microorganisms. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize there's microfossils. There's right. things you can only see under a microscope. There's also, some people say, preserved in rock, because traditionally... But if you think of a mammoth or a mastodon that's preserved in the ice, is that Uh a fossil or not a fossil, right? Now, most fossils aren't preserved in ice. so Most are preserved in rock. Most are preserved in rock. 
and any that you're going to find in Kentucky are preserved in rock. So does it count? I think it counts. Awesome. Yeah. What is a fossil? So a fossil is any evidence of ancient life preserved in rock. Okay. What is not a fossil? There are a lot of things that are. So everything <laughs> else a, is okay. not a fossil. A chair. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there are, Bad question. No, there are quite a few things. So certain organisms, uh, let's use a coral as an example. Coral living in the Bahamas. Coral living out on the Great Barrier Reef. It makes a shell, a hard body made out of essentially limestone. And little soft parts stick out of it that's living. Its body is pretty much already a rock. There's other things that when they die, it's going to take tens, hundreds, thousands of years for their hard part to become a rock. So there's a kind of transition between a part of an organism that's not quite a fossil yet to when it actually becomes a fossil. Yeah, I, the reason I put that question, what is not a fossil on there, because I'm guessing you get a lot of calls or visits from people that are convinced one thing or another is a fossil and you have to say, no, this is, this is this. And, and that's no, that's not a, you know, to, to mob on people who bring questions to us, but they're sometimes just, they're not fossils. I am often the buster of dreams, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so, there are many yeah. people that are convinced they have a dinosaur tooth or yeah. a dinosaur bone and they're not. And there are many things in nature that can mimic the shape of right. something else. Right. So you can find just rocks that are cracked into triangular shapes that are tooth shaped. That's or, a dinosaur tooth. And for it. sure. Yeah. Uh, I had somebody send me a picture of something that for all the world looked like a four foot long chicken wing. I mean, it had kind of a knob at the end, went through a tube and then widened. I'm like, yeah, I can see where you thought that was a chicken wing, but it's not. It's just a rock. Yeah. I often make the allusion to a cave formation. If you've ever been on a cave tour and they say, we turn the lights a little bit and there's Abraham Lincoln's face <laughs> or it's something like that. It's yeah. not really, but it, our brain thinks, ah, oh, it could be, it looks like it. So our guest same with just fossils. dropped a cave reference before I could. He beat you, <laughs> he beat you oh, to man. it. He beat you to it. We'll get to caves. Yeah. Here <laughs> somewhere. And, and so you, you alluded to this already, but fossils have organisms, I guess, hard parts, soft parts, but there's also what we call trace fossils. So we call those fossils even though it's not an actual body part. Correct. So a uh, fossil is any evidence of ancient life. That includes footprints. So if you think yeah. about footprints you leave behind you, that's not any part of your body that's left, but it's evidence you were there. And that's the same for people mostly think like dinosaurs and big animal tracks, but worms leave tracks Snails can leave tracks, and those are the more common kind of trace fossils we find in the rock record. And we can maybe get into this when we talk about some specific fossils in Kentucky, but more common than not, it's the hard part of an organism, a skeleton, a bone, whatever, a shell that's preserved rather than the soft part. Correct. It's much easier to preserve a hard part than a soft part. Yeah. And when you study paleontology, you often have to kind of study organisms from the inside out because it's the hard parts that are going to get left. They may not look like what the animal looks like on the outside. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So that's why sometimes people can get confused by what they find if you're not trained to look at what's inside an organism, the hard part that holds the outer part together, you might misinterpret what you're finding. Yeah. So kind of the next thing I wanted to get into was sort of the historical, I don't know if that's the right word, importance of paleontology. And it sort of sets up talking about, I think, specific fossils and maybe some things we see in Kentucky, how paleontology illuminates the history of life. I read, you know, I had to brush up on this a little bit from, from my uh, days as an undergrad taking paleontology, but... Uh, the earliest known life is about 3.5 billion years old. And that's uh, the, the age of the Earth is approximately 4.6 billion years old. So there's about a billion year difference there. So one question I had is related to that, with those dates established, how do we know the ages of, of fossils? Okay, so that's a really 
common question that we get is how can we tell how old a fossil is? And I think some people are under the misinterpretation that you just take a rock and you put it in some kind of machine and you push a button and there it is, right? And unfortunately, most of the ways we get age dating, there's many different ways. Most you don't get directly from a fossil. It's not like you push a button and that fossil can tell you the age. So there's two different ways you get age dating. One is called relative age dating, and the other is called absolute age dating. When you hear like carbon-14 dating, or we're using some type of element to determine a rate of change through time, that gives you an absolute age. You get a for sure number. So that's how many millions of years or billions of years, plus or minus some error bar. Relative age dating is what fossils are mostly used for. And that's where we can determine fossils are common in these kind of rocks. And we have maybe a layer above that we have an absolute age date for. And we have a layer below that we have an absolute age date for. So we know it's in between those two. So we can right? constrain we can relatively. Kind of, we relatively yeah. constrain the age. And what happens around the world is if you think of rock layers as like a big book giant dictionary or something. No one spot has all the pages. So you're missing chapters here and there, different places. And think about every other page is an absolute age date somewhere. So then we go and we have to puzzle piece together. Oh, we find this fossil between these two over here. It's above this layer over here. It's below this layer over here. So now we can kind of constrain the ages even more. And uh, that's how most fossil ages or ancient ages are actually determined. That, that's a great analogy because fossils are found in sedimentary rocks. And so these relative age dating principles, we put them all together to come up with the best story and best dates we can. Right. And they can, you can really constrain them pretty well because life changes through time. So the fossils change through time. So you only get fossil, certain fossils in certain intervals. And some fossils are very, uh, we call them an index fossil. They're very descriptive of a certain time zone. Other fossils have been around a little bit longer, and so they're maybe not as helpful or useful for determining a, a relative age. I read the, the oldest, since fossils are found in rocks, the oldest rocks on Earth are around 4 billion years. But, you know, I was kind of reading a little more on that. We have a very active planet Earth, right? Rocks are being destroyed and created. There's lots of weathering and erosion and lots of things going on. And so that's a rough number. And, and really, it's rare to have rocks found on Earth that are older than 3.5 billion years old. And those are only found in a few places on Earth, just to help constrain some of the oldest stuff we're talking about here. And speaking of old really old fossils, uh, a note I wanted to, to bring up were stromatolites. Stromatolites are talked about in lots of paleo textbooks, even in intro geology textbooks, as examples of some of the earliest known life forms. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's correct. And the reason I think that's cool is because here in Kentucky, we have preserved relatives of stromatolites in Ordovician age rocks. I think they're called stromatoporoids. Is that no? That's wrong. Ah, <laughs> but <They're> sponges. <laughs> okay. Well, what what are what are found in the Lexington? Those dome shaped things. You're right. Those are stromatoporoids and and sponges, not stromatolites. Okay, different thing. Sorry. We can get we can we come can back get to, to this when question. we talk about so, more stuff in Kentucky. But I bring that up because stromatolites are algal mats yeah. that are thought to be sort of some of the first. They uh, were. They're the first widespread fossils. Okay. That's easy to say. And um, the other thing that's really cool about stromatolites, and when you talk about those billions of year ages, right, they're the only thing on the planet for billions of years. So all the fossils and all the fossil diversity we have is much shorter than that. And so two times, three times as long, the stromatolites are just there as the only thing. And they are taking in carbon dioxide, and they're pumping out oxygen for a billion years. So scientists think they're actually what gets our planet engineered to the place that other life could come, which is kind of cool. It's life creating the foundation for more life and more diverse life. 
Yeah, no doubt. Oh, it's amazing. Super cool. What does a stromatolite fossil look like? There's a lot of like algal balls replaced by like chert. Is that common? Some some of those are. Honestly, when you see the, especially the ancient stromatolites, most people wouldn't recognize them as fossils because they're thin little layers in the sediment. So they tend to make different patterns. Uh, one is a dome pattern. So it's layers that dome up on top of each other. That's probably the easiest to spot. And then others, it's more difficult to tell because they just look like a layer of slightly different color in the rock. And so... And we don't have rocks at that age at the surface, so it's not something we normally look for. Right. So there's a fair amount of chert in some of the limestones, mm -hmm. the Mississippian limestones. Mm -hmm. Here it comes. <laughs> that you see in Mammoth Cave. <laughs> Are those related or is that similar? No, most of that chert is just a mineral <laughs> chert, not necessarily related specifically uh, to an algal replacement or anything, at least the, what I've seen. And doesn't Australia have still have stromatolites? There are, there are, stromatolites? There are living stromatolites. So yes. they've pers persisted for yeah three point five billion years. That's cool. That's, That's amazing. Incredible. Not uh, those same ones. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they can live a long time. Probably. Yeah. No, it's amazing. You know, some other things with paleontology, right? It obviously is a cornerstone of evolution, and I, I think. Maybe too much to get into here. We should maybe do a separate uh, episode on evolution, but it's a cornerstone with reconstructing origins of life, right? Talking about all these fossils and age dating, so much about uh, dinosaurs, evolution of flight, evolution of mammals, how geography plays a role in evolution and the di distribution of uh, fossils and animals. That's uh, probably a very crude way of trying to summarize how evolution and paleo are really related. Say what you will about, about evolution. Uh, well, obviously, fossils are some of the primary evidence that life has changed through time. And it, not only that life changes through time, but the ways it changes through time. So what are some of the rates at which changes occur? How... Do things go extinct? So without fossils, we really wouldn't have evidence of extinction. So it's not just the evolution of new life, but that life goes away sometimes. And then, of course, how does it go away? That's something maybe we should think about. So it used to be thought historically that life went on forever. And then you look at the fossil record and you can see there's dramatic changes. Uh, things like the dinosaurs no longer here. So what happened to them? People thought for a while that was gradual. Then all of a sudden it turns out it's not so gradual, that there's every once in a while sudden things that happen. And now we have a whole slew of things that we can see have caused from rocks falling from outer space, from climate change, sea level changes, all influence life. And the paleontology, the fossil record, is the way you determine that. First, how you hypothesize about it, and then how you test whether it's possible or not. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, like you said, mass extinction is a big part of that, but also life explosion. So the most famous one is the Cambrian explosion. So a time where there was just a, a rapid evolution of types of critters, right? Right. The Cambrian explosion just had a, a really uh, abundance of new types of marine invertebrates mm -hmm. in, in the Cambrian, you know, 500-ish something million years ago. So that what's called the Cambrian explosion is when most of the big forms of life, the framework shapes of life form. So what we call phyla in classification. So different phyla have different really basic body parts that are different than other body parts. The way your symmetry of your body is, the structure of your body. Most of those that we now have on Earth start back in the Cambrian and uh, different reasons possibly for that. So one is chemistry, that organisms could take elements out of the water around them and build hard parts. So the first kind of the calcium carbonate was there. Yeah, the first the shells. shells, the first body parts that ha leave a f easy fossil behind start coming out about that time. And that time is just a little bit after 
when there's enough oxygen in the world to not only create the kind of life we have on the planet now, but also the chemistry for the mineral transactions that involve oxygen in the mineral compounds or in the transitions. Now medical scientists are looking into like the genetic code changes that that took to make those things. And there's all sorts of advances in genetics in understanding how the first organisms could make a shell or a body part. That's kind of cool. That's very cool. Is the Burgess Shale Cambrian? Yes. So the Burgess Shale is a really famous spot for early Cambrian life. Wild creatures in the Burgess Shale. Exposed in Canada? Is yeah. that outcrops? Yep. It's up in the Canadian Rockies. It's halfway up a mountain. Have you ever All, seen it? I have. Wow. Fun hike. Beautiful hike if you ever yeah. get to go to it. The fossils are incredible, soft part preservation. Yeah. Organisms that normally wouldn't be preserved as a fossil in lots of details, like their the stalks of their eyeballs, the yeah. limbs, different appendages. Spikes they on the body. Weird spikes. Of, yeah. Some organisms, that's the only place they're ever found. Yeah. So it's a good example, too, of things that come and go, that life has all sorts of experiments almost that, Things get tried out and then they don't work and they don't last for long. They don't get, they don't compete well. <laughs> yeah. They look weird. Some other things look weird and then, hey, that ends up working out well and yeah. they last a long time. Also, there's that the thing about the chance of being preserved, so mm -hmm. which is very difficult. I mean, when you're a little tiny organism, the environment has to be just right for you to die and get preserved. Buried perfectly, somewhere. no oxygen, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. So for any life, to, I think it's they. The numbers change, but less than 1% of life at any given time has really got a chance of getting preserved as a fossil. Wow. And that's crazy. Yeah. You have to, the organism has to get buried really fast so that there's no time for any other organisms. You think of like roadkill on the side of the road or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> nothing can chew on it. Nothing can, you can't have a rot. You can't have decomposition. It has to get buried if you have a chance of being preserved. Then you have to have the right, body parts that minerals can get in there and alter, change, preserve to become a rock. You have to not be reworked. So a lot of things, if you're in the ocean and waves move you around or whatever, the more you get moved around, I used to call it in the, when I was teaching the classes about paleontology and earth history, it's kind of like a crime scene. You know, when if you ever watched a detective show or a science show like that where, you know, they put the chalk mark around the body and then it's, is somebody tampered with the body, right? That's, well, if there's tampering with the body, you're not get, probably going to get a fossil preserved, right? It has to get buried really fast, untampered in the ground. And then all the properties that turn sediment to rock have to work in your favor to turn it into a rock. And it has to be in a spot in the world where that rock is subsiding into the earth so it doesn't get eroded and reworked again. Then somebody, it has to come back to the surface, either through erosion down cutting to it or uplift, and somebody has to find it. That's some serious survival. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> I mean, right now underneath campus here, there's probably thousands of fossils in the limestone, but until we build a new building and that little level of you know, one foot section of that layer is exposed, you won't see it. I'm really winging it here with this factoid, but is it something like 95% of all life that's ever existed on Earth extinct? So, something close to that. Yeah, probably. I, I think. I, yeah. Look it up. The math gets hard because there's more increasingly more organisms through time. Yeah. Cool. I, I wanted to mention this too. I, I took paleo in college and I remember looking at cladograms. I don't know why this sticks with me, but cladograms are visual diagrams of like taxonomy and phylogenetics, but the way they're for all animals, but the way they're arranged tells you something about, you know, hypothesizing their evolutionary change or steps over time, where this animal went, where it, where it did, you know, where it stopped. Uh, and they're complicated things in paleontology, but I, and paleontology is a hard class. Like people think paleos, you know, oh, I'll take paleo, easy. No, right? You're looking at cladograms and all this stuff. It's, it's complicated, but fascinating. So what else here? History of life, evolution, paleoclimate, right? Fossils tell us a lot about the past environment. 
past climates, past fluctuations in, in climates, dramatic changes over time, but it's a key part of understanding past climates, which, help, which helps us understand what the future may be too. Yeah, there's quite a bit of science actually of trying to understand modern climate change and rates of climate change, what's natural and what's potentially not natural or man-made by looking at fossil record. And that can be the recent fossil record, the ice age changes in climate since the last ice ages or between the ice ages. It can also be there's a scientist that look back at times in earth history where we note dramatic changes in climate. Uh, the middle of the Eocene is one, during the Permian is another one. And people will look at, for example, the changes in the plant fossils in an area to see what kind of plant types changed from maybe something that needs a lot of water to something that was drier. When do certain plants go extinct? When do other ones come? How fast are plants spreading? Those kind of provides data from which you can interpret changes to plants, which indirectly tells you changes to climate. Yeah. Plant rooting also is a way in soils. I mean, there's actually soils that are preserved and soils are a really direct uh, clue to what ancient climates were. Yeah. I knew we'd talk about root traces at some root, point. Root traces? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think you brought up a, an interesting thing there, just, just sort of touched on it, and I think it'd be worth making really clear. But when we divide up geologic time, we actually do that based on the fossil record, largely correct? So a, a combination of the fossil record and the rock record, yeah. So uh, it's changes in life that were noticed, changes in the kind of fossils and rock types sometimes that were found in different layers historically in different areas. And then those get correlated around the world and we use those as the primary way that time was divided. Awesome. And another thing I wanted to get in here was uh, fossils' contribution to the theory of continental drift, which is, again, sort of the cornerstone of what became plate tectonics. And so how, do we, how did fossils help us understand that continents' land masses have moved over time? So historically, this is 150 years ago or so, people started to look at across the Atlantic Ocean, the way the continents appeared, to, if you could put them back together, like they'd puzzle. fit together like a puzzle. It made no sense because there was this big ocean in between. And so a guy named Alfred Wegener came up with this idea that at one time they were together. So that's his hypothesis. So how do you test that hypothesis? How do you check for it? And so what he started to do was then look at places in South America and Africa that looked like they should be together. And it turns out that sometimes there were very similar fossils on either side of where they should be together. And Separated those fossils by are, a, hu a huge ocean. That now have a huge ocean in between. Uh, also some mineral deposits, other things. But when he started doing that more and more, he found more and more evidence of places that fossil A was only known in this part of South America and only known in this part of Africa are only known in this part of Australia and then only part of Asia and pieced together that there really was evidence that the continents had once been together. And say say it's a, a reptilian fossil of some kind, it, it doesn't make sense that that creature could swim across hundreds of miles of ocean and be in two different present day positioned continents. The continental drift is also a great example of how science works and that a hypothesis comes up and it's kind of a crazy idea. And then they have to look for data that might prove it. How do you help? How do you prove something that? So they came up with lots of data, including the fossils to show it could happen, but then had to come up with a mechanism for how it would happen. And back in the earlier part of the century, they really didn't have an understanding of how the inside of the earth worked. So the idea of continental drift actually doesn't work. The mechanism doesn't work for what they came up with. The data was there. Right. The data is still correct, but the mechanism of how the continents separated and moved was wrong, so that theory is wrong. The engine, they didn't know what the they, engine was. They didn't know this moving. deep internal yeah. engine in the Earth. So then plate tectonics comes along with more data 
better technology for understanding deeper things, more advancements in science, and then you use the same data used for the old theory, but now you have a mechanism that actually works and a mechanism that you can show works. So, I want to just circle back to a couple of things on sort of history of life and age of the earth and stuff. And, and so just mention briefly about uncertainty and this explaining uncertainty in all disciplines in geology is important, but there's, you know, there's uncertainty with paleontology and how we, you know, piece together things and, and evolution. And it seems, you know, a lot of textbooks talk about how rare evolution might be, even though we know a lot about it, like we know it happens, but we only know about it on earth. And so does that make it an unlikely event, a rare event? There was like the perfect kind of <laughs> the perfect kind of thing to, you know, the right compounds floating in space to be able to form life on a, on a planet. So, and then once you had that happen, right, what were the environments that were the ones that had like the first, the first life? Was it the deep marine ocean? Was it a volcanic vent? Was it some glacial environment? Was it a tropical environment? I just tee that up to say that there are things we don't know in history and origins of life. There's plenty we don't know. There's plenty <laughs> I don't know also, by the way. Yeah, so this, this is not a play thing I actually study that much. But I will say uh, part of our uncertainty about life is also there's uncertainty we have about the life that's around now, not just the origin of life. Yeah. But 30 years ago, nobody knew about deep sea vent animals and that there were these organisms that lived on sulfur right, coming out of the deep ocean. That was like something you'd see on Star Trek or something, right? It's not a real thing. And then it's a real thing. And we know there's different kind of life that lives in geyser ponds and can take incredible heat. A hundred years ago, we didn't know about. Yeah. So there are many different kinds of life, many different kind of organisms, and scientists are definitely still learning yeah. about them. I think that's something I, I was thinking about earlier was you were talking about the organisms that we see in fossils, you know, they're, they're the hard parts that are left and we have to extrapolate from what we know about current life in order to, to make a determination about what that organism looked like in the past. We don't, we don't have a, a photograph of what, you know, say a trilobite looked at, but we're, extrapolating, say, from what some modern organism that may look sort of like a trilobite, I guess. And how does that work? I mean, you know, it's... So that, I like that question because I'm an artist too. So I like... Oh, yeah, I right. like, Yeah, yeah. That's I, right. I like a good, a reconstructing good what the organisms look like when we do things. So yeah. geology, but certainly paleontology has this kind of mantra that's the present is the key to the past. So when you're trying to reconstruct an organism, if you're doing it scientifically accurately, you're using what we can see about modern organisms and uh, a process called comparative anatomy, where you are looking at body parts and that can be bones and how the bones are put together. It can be muscle attachment scars that are left on the bones that tell you where the muscles were attached. So how the bone actually moved or what it was capable of moving. For things like teeth, different teeth have different functions, which then they're the tools in your mouth that allow you to process food. So different shapes of teeth tell you what the diet of that organism was and how it processed food. Some animals, mammals in the past, can be really hard to differentiate because mammals are covered with hair sometimes and sometimes not. Reptiles, the body shape looks a lot like what the skeletal shape looks like. They don't have a lot of fatty tissue or hair or things like that. So there's certain animals you can kind of get an easier feel for than others. A, a crab looks like a crab. A clam looks like a clam <laughs> without a, needing a lot of interpretation. <laughs> so different organisms, different amounts of certainty in what they look like. I think going back just a little bit before this as well, you were talking about the deep sea vents and sulfur munching organisms and things like that. And in the beginning of the episode talked about how some things, some fossils are microscopic. And so that really makes me think of the microbes and talking about what we're just now sort of beginning to understand. I think it's fairly recent that we're starting to understand like the microbial interactions 
with rock and that there's a lot more going on there than we've really realized before. Certainly there's also the microbial, when you talk about paleontology, making a fossil has microbial parts to it. So whether something is decomposes or not as a microbial process. Mm. There are biofilms mm. that can be left on organisms that actually help in their preservations that are a microbial process in some environments. So there is quite a bit of that microbial life that is involved in making a fossil. Sometimes some of that microbial life also can be preserved as fossils. Things like pollens that are microscopic get preserved as fossils quite often. Uh, there's microscopic little teeth and scales and bits and pieces of things that are left in the rock record. If you know what to look for and you have a microscope, you can see them. That's, that's a good segue because I want to get back to my stromatoporoids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stromatoporoids. Let's, let's talk about fossils in Kentucky. Well, first, Steve, maybe say something generally about ages of rocks here that have fossils? So Kentucky has rocks from the uh, uppermost Ordovician to the latest. We have a little bit of Permian, but you really can't see it. So let's yeah. just say okay. up into the Pennsylvanian. So it's the what we call the Paleozoic era. That's pre-dinosaur time for most of Kentucky. Right. And then if you go out into parts of western Kentucky, the Jackson Purchase area, we do have some late Cretaceous uh, sediment and rock there. And then some of the next part of Earth time, the Cenozoic era, is preserved in different areas, mostly in western Kentucky, out towards the Mississippi River and Ohio River. A question I suspect you get a lot is, why doesn't Kentucky have any dinosaur fossils? So that's because of the rocks we have at the surface. Our, most of our state is covered by rocks that are much older than when dinosaurs were around. So we just, we're not a good state for finding dinosaurs. And we we have a couple of rock layers that could someday have a dinosaur or could someday have one of those marine reptiles that lived at the same time of the dinosaurs, but none has ever been found. Right. So stromatoporoids, <laughs> not going to let it go. Uh, there are sponges? What? Yes. Okay. So if, any, if you're driving around Lexington, you're seeing a road cut on the side of the road, you'll see these things. They're sort of, the, the, the rock's the limestone is gray, but you see these football-shaped kind of mushroom head-shaped tannish features. And I, are those stromatoporoids? Some of those can be. Okay. Um, yeah, but so they have not... all sorts of different shapes. Sometimes they're pinkish or red. Sometimes they're white. It just depends on the minerals that are replaced. And so that's a sponge. They're a sponge. Okay. Fossil I sponges. I didn't know that. I thought it was more of like a microbial mat kind of thing. There, there probably can be. Yeah. This is probably something you should erase because it's well outside my. Okay, they're cool, <laughs> but but they're cool. I mean, they're they're really yeah. cool. They're interesting. Yeah. So the the ones that are the big mounds tend to be these stromatoporoids. You also see those at the Falls of the Ohio. Okay. Right? And there, they're black and gray. Oh. So it just depends on the minerals that replace the body parts to form the fossil. What color it is. I think a lot of what people think about when they think fossils in Kentucky are. Uh, marine invertebrates, brachiopods, crinoids, trilobites. Trilobites. People love trilobites. Yeah. What else? We have corals. Corals. You start to get into the kind of organisms that most people don't know about, which would be things like a bryozoan, which is a coral-like invertebrate organism, or a crinoid, which is a sea lily, a, a little sea lily, right? But that's not something that you see in the aquarium or you see on a nature show that often. So the average person isn't familiar with them, even though they're extremely abundant fossils. Crinoids everywhere. Yeah. Cephalopods, ammonites. We have ammonites in Kentucky? We do have ammonites in Kentucky. Whoa. And then we should mention plant fossils, too. Pennsylvania has abundance of plant fossils. Right. So we tend to think more, I think most people that collect fossils tend to collect more of the shelly marine yeah. fossils. But most of our coal fields have quite a bit. They also have marine fossils, but they also have the plant fossils, uh, ferns and leaf and bark impressions. and Plants that are extinct now plants that are extinct now, although some look very similar. So you can find fern fossils that if anybody saw that, they would say, 
that's a fern. <laughs> it's just not the kind of fern you have in your house or growing in your backyard. Is a lipididendron, is that a fern, a tree fern? Oh, look at you with the big oh. words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I yeah. like tree ferns. <laughs> lipididendron is actually a lycopod. It's a scale tree, so a little Ooh. bit different than a tree fern, but tree ferns did exist at the same time. Ooh. Lycopod trees can get pretty tall, right? Lycopod trees got really big. So there are different kinds. That So there's lycopod trees that were small. But if you go out in the back of the Kentucky Geological Survey behind, we have a big fossil tree stump there. And what I always tell students to do, if you try to imagine how big that tree is, look at the trees that are next to it that are a quarter of the diameter of that stump, and you can imagine how big that tree was. And that's a... That is a lycopod tree. And now we have lycopodium. Which is a teeny tiny little plant that is an ancient... I don't know how many generations removed, but it's all that's left. Yeah. Of the like a podium. Like a podium. I think it's like oh. a club moss, right? It's a, it's a moss. It's and a little moss. It's the evolutionary link between your ferns and your trees. Is that is that is that right? I don't know about ferns and trees. It's but an evolutionary link back oh, to the moss. lycopod trees, mm. to the scale trees. So cool. So there's a bunch of like a podium in Mammoth Cave <laughs> at the surface. Cool. Oh, at the surface. At the surface. That was really working. It really <laughs> Actually, I love like a podium. It's really cool. And so I get really excited when I see it, when I hike. So several years ago, a coal miner found a shark jaw mm -hmm. in a Western Kentucky coal mine. You want to say something about that? I mean, that was a big deal. It was, it was really cool. So it's cool for a couple different reasons. First is the kind of shark it was. So most of the shark teeth that are found in Kentucky are pretty small, and there's a variety of different kinds. But these teeth were triangular and big. They were big. They're big. Serrated. Right. So yeah. pe people love the kind of great white shark, megalodon shark teeth. They like those big kind of giant shark teeth. And this is the closest we have to something like that in Kentucky. It's also really neat because it's a kind of tooth that went in a really weird shark. It's a shark that doesn't <laughs> last long. It had a saw blade running down the lower jaw and maybe the upper jaw in the middle. And that's where the teeth are. So Whoa. the teeth Whoa. aren't like on mandibles on either side of a jaw. It's a buzzsaw running down the middle. <laughs> Tear you up. They're really cool. There's probably a dozen that have been found in recent years in the Western Kentucky coal field. I can't really picture how that works. It's pretty weird looking. <laughs> and the other thing that's interesting about it, this was found by a miner. Most of the, the shark teeth that have been found, similar kind, it's called edestus, have been found by miners or in uh, mine tailings from uh, old mine areas. And to me, it's interesting from the sedimentology part and that when we think of coal, coal is a peat swamp. It's the swamp, so you're at a place that's near water level. But often the layers on top of a coal are marine. Deeper water. Deeper water. So it shows that sea level came up, flooded the swamp, killed off the swamp, and that's where we find the shark fossils. We find other fossils in that layer. So completely different kinds of fossils in different layers, which is one of the things that fossils are, that's where they're useful, is trying to interpret how that rock layer was deposited. And then when you look at those stacked like pages in a book, it then gives you a history of change through time. And correlating with other layers, too. The shark jaw is on display here at the KGS, so if people want to come look at it, they can. So what else here? Um, I have, we, we should mention uh, the Falls of the Ohio. It's not in Kentucky, but it's right across the river from Louisville, but one of the world-famous Devonian fossil beds. And It is. It's a world-famous fossil site, and it actually is in Kentucky at low water because ah. Kentucky claims everything to the northern side of the river. Yes. So... Goose Island, which is at the fossil beds of the Falls of the Ohio, has a little bit of the Ohio River on the other side. So when that's exposed, the part of the fossil beds are in Kentucky. Yes. <laughs> the main park is in Indiana. <laughs> a lot of Devonian corals, brachiopods, bryozoans. If you've never been there, you should go during the summer. So during the winter and fall, water levels are up, and it's actually under the Ohio River. Yeah. 
And then during the summer months, they close some gates on the dam, water levels go down and expose the fossil beds. And there are a million fossils exposed in the rocks there. You can't not yeah. see the fossils. They're everywhere and they're densely packed and you can just see all sorts of different evidence of life. They have a great visitor center there yeah. with an interpretive. Yeah, a movie, several, I think. Movies, yeah. several different interpretive exhibits. The staff is great working with groups. and It's a wonderful place to go. Yeah, agree. The other sort of significant spot I had to talk about was Big Bone Lick. Mm-hmm. Is it Big Bone Lick a state park? Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, state, state park. State park, mm-hmm. which preserves Pleistocene mammals. Mm-hmm. So we don't have any dinosaurs, but we no dinosaurs. Some, right. some people mammals, sometimes uh, think they are dinosaurs. They, <laughs> yeah, they can, because right. yeah. some people think any evidence of any ancient life was a dinosaur. But it's big hairy elephants, <laughs> and uh, also bison and horses yeah. and other mammals that don't necessarily get the notoriety of the mastodons and mammoths. It's Significant cool site though, because it's. I think Lewis and Clark went through there and yeah so it's the it's actually considered the birthplace of American vertebrate paleontology yeah, right. so it was the first place that anyone dug bones out of the ground in North America some french explorers did that really? and then it was the first place that had a sponsored dig specifically to get bones out of the ground so there's a, a history of discovery of the bones there it was a salt lick yeah. So that in the pioneering days, when we were first, our ancestors first going out across the West, when Kentucky was the West, salt licks were really important. So they would stop on the Ohio River at the salt lick. And then bones were being found and more and more bones. And those got shipped back East. And people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were astounded by them and studied them. And Benjamin Franklin was our ambassador to France. He gave it to this guy named Cuvier, who was in France and had also seen bones similar to that from Siberia and Europe. So he was able to compare those bones and say, hey, this is an animal that doesn't exist anymore. This is kind of cool. So the whole idea of extinction (laughs) comes from fossil bones, partly from Big Big Bone Lake, Kentucky. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. I love it. I think maybe this has been mentioned on some of our previous podcasts, but I'm going to remind everybody that there is a story map on the KGS website that covers northern Kentucky, and it's a little geologic tour story map, and that includes some information on Big Bone Lake. So I'd check that out if you're interested. I should also plug Steve's write-ups about mostly invertebrate fossils in Kentucky as part of a fossil of the month type series that you can go back on our website and look up, but they're Mm -hmm. fantastic write-ups that, I think we have either mammoth or mastodon as one of the fossils. I think so. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Also give a plug to the Kentucky paleontological society. It's an active fossil group. And is Dan Phelps still uh, running that? Yeah, they do some great stuff, run field trips. What else do they? They have a monthly meeting where they talk about, they usually bring a speaker in to talk about some kind of fossil or fossil collecting. They organize monthly field trips in different parts of the state, and it's for amateur collectors, so anybody can come. They're really great with uh, children and working with school groups and different organizations and do a great job of promoting not just paleontology, but I think science in general. I wanted to ask one last question, sort of a deviation here, but how is paleontology doing with career-wise? I mean, what are trends in paleontology? Are people maintaining interest in paleontological careers? How does that, as a discipline of geology, where is it? I would say as a discipline of geology, there's less and less paleontologists in the world. So there are parts of paleontology that are used for practical things. So for example, some of the microfossils alteration of those microfossils helps with understanding oil migration and oil hydrocarbon maturation. Yeah. So there are people that study that and that's a career path in studying that. But actual just paleontology less and less universities have paleontologists on staff anymore. Yeah. So there are fewer and fewer jobs. There's still research and there's still yeah. active work in it, but it's not what it was a hundred years ago. Yeah. Well, I realized I missed my cue when we were talking about the sharks. 
<laughs> oh, hey, no, go ahead. And so, we missed this. All right. So, so there was, I don't know, maybe it's been about a, a year ago or something that there was a news article that came out, an announcement from Mammoth Cave that they had been discovering numerous shark teeth. And we were talking before the show started, I think also spine or vertebrae portions of the shark. And so I think that that's something we... Steve mentioned that the the research has not been published yet, and so I think that we're still anxiously awaiting yeah, to hear. Just cool to think about. There's yeah, so sharks shark are fossils yeah, sharks are pretty cool too. That really the only part of a shark that usually gets preserved are the teeth. So the whole rest of the body is made up of something that doesn't get preserved as fossils. So when you think about it, the only evidence we have is usually the teeth. Yeah. And the one in Mammoth Cave is an example where they have some soft parts with it. So that would really help to maybe define parts of the shape of that particular kind of shark. Also, don't want to say this, but I feel like I have to say it. But the shark did not live in the cave; it yeah. was found in the rocks. That yes. the in the rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes, that's a really good point because that was a misunderstanding. Sharks did not swim through <laughs> right. Mammoth Cave. <Yeah. laughs> Another misunderstanding that happens quite often is that because the shark is a certain age and the rocks in the cave are a certain age. It does not mean that that's when the cave started forming. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The cave starts yeah. forming much, much, much later. Yeah. Absolutely. I had one other thing that I guess I thought I find interesting and thought I'd mention um, when we were talking at the very beginning about what is a fossil and what is not a fossil. We've talked about plants and we've talked about marine life and, um, other types of life, but um, we haven't talked about humans. And so I think like f- like footprints we talked about. So even human footprints are fossils. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a cool concept like that we are old enough as a species to have fossil evidence of ourselves. We can't separate ourselves yeah, out, right, <laughs> I right, guess, yeah, right? Right, right. So, yeah, so. Float in here. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, thank you for being a guest on the Big Blue Rock Pod. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Appreciate being this was fun. Great guest. Thank you all very much. Yeah. Enjoyed it. It was fun. All thanks, right. Matt. Super thanks, good. Steve. This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening. 